Hello and welcome to PSG Review, the show trying to do the right thing in the world show wrong also known as the kings of cognitive dissonances. Qatar World Cup is getting to be in full effect. My name is Miko. Really great to have you listening. It is much appreciated. And today in this episode, we talk about the often unspoken. Well, it's not unspoken currently because as the World Cup has been approaching, the voices against it have gotten louder. A little late, I will give you that, but nevertheless. And in this episode, we say the silent part out loud because being a PSG supporter, but also just a supporter of modern popular football requires a certain amount of mental gymnastics. In fact, the whole football industry, and I will call it an industry because what else is it, is so morally compromised that as an escape, which it also is for many of us from the politics of the world or our various respective countries and communities or even families or workplace, it can lead you to look away, to shrug in indifference because what can you really do? The ethical dead ends, the injustice and exploitation, the incredible double standards, it all exists all the time, all around us. And that applies to all of us, but especially it applies to us PSG supporters, of course, who have to constantly decide whether to defend the indefensible, ignore it or argue against it. And in the last couple of months, the moral conundrums have included whether it is justifiable that the club flies around France or should there be a shift to trains when possible. I gather if they get the logistics right, it could be possible. But it's a huge consideration when you have Messi, Neymar and Mbappe on board. It's not quite the same as some league deux side hopping in and out of the train, but this is something I have addressed in a previous episode. You can find that if you want to focus more on that. Either way, that's almost like a vanilla version of the moral issues that we are dealing with. Then we have had to travel to an apartheid country. And these are not just my words, but the words of Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International and Israeli local human rights group Betzlem. The Trophée des Champions has now been organized two years in a row in Tel Aviv and PSG has traveled to both of these finals. A little bit of context here. According to Radio France and other French sources, the LFP has organized the event together with Israeli-Canadian businessman Sylvain Adams, who is a self-proclaimed ambassador of the state of Israel and Comtec Group, the Israel firm specializing in events organization which has amongst its clients and the Israeli government as well as companies based in illegal colonies in the occupied West Bank. For several years, Sylvan Adams has become involved in the high-level sports in order to change and improve Israel's image. Yet none of this was part of the broader conversation at the time of either one of these finals played there. And despite the fact that one of our players, Ashraf Hakimi, was targeted in a very cowardly manner, in my opinion, by the crowds, only because he had some time before, in connection to one of the unprovoked missile attacks on Palestine by Israel, dared to tweet, free Palestine. Asking for freedom to oppressed people is hardly an extreme view, in, in my opinion it certainly isn't, but this is what we deal with. And of course, that was not all of it, because UEFA allows Israeli teams to participate in its competitions, unlike the Russian ones, which it has rightfully banned. PSG, of course, had to travel there for the second time in Champions League group stage as well. Then we have had Neymar supporting a racist, sexist and homophobic standing president at the time, 
Shar Bolsonaro in Brazil for re-election uh, in the presidential elections there. There's an episode of PSG Review also contextualizing that, so I won't get too much into it. But that was another moral minefield, and none of that has yet to address that the owner of PSG is QSI. Qatar Sports Investment, which is a Qatari state company, and now we have the World Cup there. There are several legitimate grievances, very legitimate grievances. The labor rights and the working conditions are top of the list, as are the other human rights issues, especially with sexual minorities. Now, of course, it is easy to get into what about of the labor rights in the United Arab Emirates, which owns Manchester City and half of the European footballers visit it at least annually for their holidays. And we like their Instagram photos from Dubai and wherever, despite the role of that country in the Yemen war, which is absolutely horrendous human rights crisis beheaded by Saudi Arabia, who has also been getting involved in the European football. All those things exist and all of them create a context. What we are dealing with here, this is the framework within which modern popular football, the, the one that we love, exists in. It's part of it. It's sponsored by air companies, junk food, booze, oil and betting sites, administered by organizations like FIFA and UEFA, talked about by newspapers, owned by tax-dodging oligarchs. It's all a bit of a mess, and now we arrive to the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Let's put some of these criticisms of the Qatar World Cup into perspective. There are criticisms about this World Cup that are fundamentally about human rights, labor rights, and of course the rights of the various LGBTQ plus groups. These are sort of non-negotiable criticisms. Certainly, to me, they are non-negotiable. I don't speculate around them People need to be respected. That's clear. That is my stance. Then there are financial criticisms about the corruption within football, within FIFA and allegedly how these World Cups are allocated. I'm not saying that these things aren't intertwined, but they're also good to kind of view separately sometimes because having this kind of one massive overarching gag reflex isn't really opening up the conversation. What is the issue and how to avoid it? Or are we just simply happy to keep on complaining until further notice? And lastly, well, there might be more of these things, but for the purposes of this analysis, the last category of criticism is sort of unwritten football values. Having it in a country that doesn't have a strong football culture, having it during November, December, which in the northern hemisphere is largely seen as a winter time, uh, you know, and you must remember that the World Cup has been organized during winter before. It was just winter in South Africa. And having lived there for years, I can tell you that it could not have been gloomier a time of the year than what it was. And I imagine that there are some people there even right now in the tourism board who would have loved to have it around this time of the year because it just simply would have been a lot better and would have given a lot nicer image of the country to all the uh, tourists and, and, and fans and everybody else even watching it from the TV. So the argument about timing is partially about tradition, but also kind of centers the global north in this debate. Is World Cup something for Europeans primarily to enjoy? Should we always have the first dips? There's a quite a large segment of this criticism that comes from these, just that the tournament is held in a non-football country, whatever that means, because of course the next tournament is held in, in USA and Canada together, Mexico, of course, but are USA and Canada, are they uh, traditional footballing countries? You know, tell me that. Uh, these things in and of themselves, they create a lot of upset. There are also people who don't care about the human rights of South Asian laborers any more than they worry about the fate of sexual minorities. But 
what they won't stand for is things not done in the way they themselves want them to be done. Always. To me, these criticisms, quite frankly, are fairly uninteresting and often they reflect this kind of hierarchical thinking and a sense of cultural superiority. If some place doesn't have a suitable weather during June and July, shall we just write them off? Are they forever going to be uh, non-suitable uh, destinations for the World Cup? You know, we can say that is the case, but then at the same time, let's not kid ourselves and say that this is somehow kind of like a global global uh, event and situation. Because you also have to consider this. How about having it in southern Europe in July as the summer temperatures are getting higher and higher? It seems perfectly possible to me that the timing will have to be reconsidered at some point anyway. I'm not saying it definitely will happen, but as the as the climate is, is changing, uh, the summers are getting quite hot in large parts of also the Europe. So it's going to be, uh, these, these, these things are going to be considerations, whether we like them or not. And and yeah, I'm not saying it will definitely happen. I'm just saying that it's possible. And from this, of course, it is entirely another question, very important to kind of keep them separate also, that we consider the health and well-being of the players who are admittedly very overextended these days, as it is already because of the maximum number of matches played, because huge part of the business in top football is in televising it. And that's why I think we get all these nations leagues and conference leagues and such. And I think they have their value and they're very useful co- to, to offer competitive matches for teams and nations that otherwise aren't on the top. But I imagine TV right contracts also play a part in this and the players pay the price with their buddies and the fans with their wallets. That's how it is. Also part of this last category of complaints and criticism of Qatar World Cup with the time and place are also these paid to wave the flag workers and crowds. It goes against how we understand the sport, the culture around it, and the etiquette. These are unwritten rules of football, but if, if you compare these crowds to drunken gangs of fans fighting and causing disturbance in the streets of the host cities, I personally find that the paid supporters are quite joyful. Actually, I mean, it's not their fault that they are there. They are just taking an opportunity that is given to them. And, and I, for one, say that uh, they really need to just enjoy, take the money that they can get and enjoy uh, enjoy the tournament, enjoy their gig for this time, if it is indeed enjoyable. And, uh, and also, it's important to say that I'm also not relegating all the fans, the traditional fans, into these drunken brawls, but... Sometimes you see them, and and I will say that sometimes when you see them, we also have to look into the football culture as opposed to the industry, uh, you know, internally, and 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 see how things can be done better. And not always just sort of like point the fingers. That's not to take anything, uh, any criticism away, the legitimate criticism certainly from from anything that is happening. But uh, you know, nobody nobody really is perfect here, and it's important to have that self reflection as well. But I digress and. Essentially, of course, every major sporting or other international event is sports washing anyway. This tournament is sports washing, but so is everything else. Everyone is trying to use the occasion to shine up their reputation internationally and to rally goodwill for their whereabouts. It just depends and varies what are they trying to, not to say cover up, but but uh, but against what actions or what uh, stereotypes are they trying to create this goodwill and good optics. In uh, 2012 Olympics in London, the British people by and large felt this 
great joy of how the opening ceremony in particularly went. And it was quite a show celebrating Britain. And I think it was beautiful. It was really nice. I also used to live in Britain and I have certainly been under many British cultural influences from Stephen Fry to Klashnikov and many things in between. And there are many things in between those two people. But this opening ceremony was coming after Tony Blair's oil war. So you don't even have to go as far as the empire to call into question this feel-good event telling a very selective story of a nation-state. But it was masterfully done then. And that might be something that the Qataris will struggle to do, certainly for the Western sensibility. But PR is still PR in its essence, regardless of whether it's successful or not. The attempt is there. The point of it is the same. The power of sports washing is how effective it is. And with Putin's 2018 World Cup, you know, need I remind? Well, after the annexation of Crimea 2014, it was incredibly powerful and successful sports washing event because it genuinely, I think, changed our view of the host country. It was also after the Winter Olympics and China has had two Olympic Games as well in the recent past. I mean, don't get me started about Formula One who go anywhere where there's money, golf competitions and tournaments and tours. They also visit places that have less than perfect record with human rights and such. I can tell you this much. There are days when I wonder if some of our anger towards Qatar is powered by our failure to see through Putin's World Cup or that we didn't care so much about these other events. We didn't take them that seriously the issues behind them. And that's not to let Qatar off the hook. Of course it isn't. That is to not let ourselves off the hook. With Qatar now, they have drawn attention to themselves, invited the spotlight on them. And if they would not have done it, you know, to trying to get first apply and then get this competition and organize them, build the stadium, everything else. If they would not have done that, they would not be really facing criticism. Certainly not to this extent. This thing has possibly turned against them in that sense. Because if after the World Cup, we think less of them than what we did when we knew next to nothing about them, well, you know, then that's a problem. But if they get business and tourism, then it's successful. We must also remember that we can boycott it. We can protest. We can say whatever. But if the business goes there or if there's other people who go there, uh, you know, then it will still be successful. They don't need absolutely everybody be on their side, but just rally some kind of goodwill. And it's also important to say that there are a lot of people around the world not coming from Europe or North America, from the so-called West, uh, whatever that means, whatever your definition of that is, who are kind of looking at the big global picture and saying that, well, you know, there are a lot of problems in the world and we can't just sort of like only focus on the problems that are allocated to us by the Western power hierarchy, by the Western media, and so on and so forth. So they can look at the history and what the West has done before and say that, well, you know, these people aren't necessarily in a position to tell us what is the human rights crisis that we should focus our attention and energy towards. The big question with this World Cup is, I think, in my opinion, will it usher in a new era of scrutiny for sports washing? Will we put all of the future hosts of any competition, certainly Football World Cup, under the same kind of microscope to investigate their human rights record of the society, the way they are organized? Or is it just when it's in a small country that we don't find particularly threatening? It's essentially quite a small country despite its wealth. 
Are we angry specifically only because there's been so many lives lost in the constructions of these stadiums and other facilities? And we definitely need to not stop talking about that because that's a very important thing. Or if the host nation builds the stadia with union labor, with paid paternity leave and all, but engages in other activities where lives are lost, is that somehow less bad? How are we prioritizing these different problems? The, the reason why I bring this up is also because I recognize that within our societies, you know, you can call it, like I said, West, Global, North, whatever we wish. The thing about us is also that we've come to a point where we have shifted much of our emissions and exploitations to poorer countries while still living lifestyles that require quite a bit of unfairness in global context. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm talking about a subject that is very sensitive, as it should be. When we talk about rights of our fellow people, we should have that understanding that it is a sensitive matter. But at the same time, I feel like we need to try to organize these criticisms a little so that they can mean something. That it doesn't become merely a fashionable thing to do. You know, because if the conclusion of all this debate that we are currently having globally, or certainly in a large parts of the of the world, if the conclusion of that is that Qatar is a problematic state and this tournament is a problematic tournament, then, you know, I'm in agreement. But if the consensus needs to be that this tournament is somehow outside of the immorality of football in general, you know, it's authorities like FIFA, the club owners, the press barons publishing stories about it, or even the tax-dodging superstars, or even more so if we need to believe that this is somehow uncharacteristic to our civilization, to our species, then I'm ringing the alarm. Because like I said, we had Russia, the whole mess. Was it not corrupt to build a stadium in Brazil in the middle of Amazon that isn't even used for anything anymore much? Are we supposed to ignore the fact that the reason Premier League is wealthier than other leagues is because of Robert Murdoch's TV money? The same money that spreads pro-war and prejudice propaganda around the world, not least of all in the United States. It's the same guy. You know, you do know that it's the same guy, right? And we, of course, as PSG supporters, those of us who are PSG supporters like I am, we need to negotiate the fact that the same money that gives us Mbappe, Messi and Neymar also does this thing that we are looking at right now. All this. That we are here talking about it. It goes hand in hand, but as much as a country, an oligarch, an investor or any other person or a group can legally own the club, the clubs are also really, in a way, owned by the fans. What I mean is that the idea of a football club is owned by its supporters. The club ownership financially and legally, you know, on some documents can be in a safe somewhere, but the genuine ownership is in the stands at the stadium, at the park and beyond. It's in the chant of the traveling PSG ultras during Champions League. It is you arguing your case for the club online or at home at the edge of your seat. That is also meaningful and that is where a lot of power is, as we noticed during the protest of last year at the park, it wasn't just the same. It just really was not the same thing, but we can't just ignore also what the owners are doing. We need to be able to connect those dots. And we are, of course, all very aware because we are constantly reminded of it that PSG is a young club, relatively speaking, 50-odd years now, and therefore not quite in the same category as some of the so-called traditional clubs in Europe. Of, Of course, also not in the same category as RB Leipzig, which was formed in 2009. And PSG has long before the Qatari cash injection had success both domestically as well as on the continent. Of course, it has skyrocketed since the takeover, but uh, there was something before any of this as well. 
including, of course, the Cup Winners' Cup of 1996. In Paris, the QSI, the Qatar Sports Investment, has done pretty good work. They pay an absolute huge amount of taxes and other employer fees. They might be actually on top of that in the whole Europe. To my ear, there's been less talk about tax avoidance in France than in many of the other European leagues. And while PSG has been dominant during this era, which also one day might end, it's also raised the level of the whole league on and French football in general. That's not to excuse them. They do things in the best possible way because they want things to look the best possible way. That is part of the sports washing. That is its actually sole function. Saying resounding no to Super League is because PSG doesn't need money. It needs positive publicity. And saying no definitely is that. Nasser Al-Khalifi knows what he's doing. I was so surprised that Manchester City said yes to the Super League. Like, did they forget their function or where they were just somehow unaware of it? But while QSI does a lot of things right in France, that doesn't mean that there aren't other places where their issues are. After signing with PSG in 2018, Neymar signed a contract to be the brand ambassador of Qatar World Cup. Of course, it was night that this had anything to do with the contract itself. And now David Beckham is finding himself in hot water in England because of his arrangement with the state of Qatar. He too has an ambassadorial role, but he is also a huge gay icon in the UK and beyond. He has always been a kind of front runner of including the sexual minorities in sport and even posed for famous gay magazines in the UK, which is something that hasn't much happened before him or since. So for him to now talk on behalf of a country where these rights are not respected, of course, doesn't go down well with his many LGTBQ plus fans. It's seen as a betrayal by them, while Beckham himself says now that the games are a platform for progress and tolerance. Now, we as PSG fans, of course, we have a little bit of more information, or we can at least make some assumptions or guesses about the situation, because we know that when he signed to Paris, when he signed for PSG for the last half a year of his uh, competitive career, he reportedly donated his wages to charities. But was this arrangement, according to Guardian, now it's worth 150 million pounds with Qatar? Was it entirely separate matter from that deal when he came to Paris? I mean, in the absence of evidence, we all need to make up our own minds here. Uh, but I would say that the optics are directing us to a specific direction. You know, make of that what you will. Then again, Lionel Messi has just signed a huge deal to promote Saudi Arabia. I don't want to put too much blame on these individuals, but it is clear that this whole environment is quite toxic. All this is tied into a corrupt system and business of football. Yet somehow we love it. The football, not the corruption. <laughs> There's a lot of cognitive dissonance here. We know better, but the feelings are strong also. So the question here is now, should the World Cup in Qatar be boycotted? It's a huge question for everyone to answer themselves because collectively, you don't start a meaningful boycott a few weeks before the actual event. That's just not how it works. Boycott is a political movement and not a fleeting moment in somewhere in the social media. There's no structure that supports widespread boycott. And in my opinion, like I have been talking here today, the criticisms are a little bit all over. That's not to belittle the issues, just our ability to organize them. These are the Instagram black squares all over again, if you remember those and how effective they were. Not very. The truth is that this World Cup is problematic, not because it is different from its context, 
it's not the reason that what is happening now is so different to what is always happening, but rather that this is perfectly logical extension of the football industrial complex and its media extension. This is exactly what it was always going to be. Giving the World Cup to Qatar was logical in the context of FIFA and for them to be organizing it like this isn't surprising. We're dealing with symptoms. We're not dealing with causes, we're dealing with symptoms. But we think that they are the causes. And if we want to use a small, even a very rich country as a scapegoat, we will find ourselves in the same situation time and time again. The change, it requires change. Even if that change would be inconvenient, uncomfortable and quite irritating at times, certainly a bother. If we want to get into that process, then let's get into this process. But what is not going to solve the problem is to identify a scapegoat like Qatar, point a finger and then keep repeating the old behavior. And that is not to say that Qatar doesn't need to be criticized. That's I'm being, repeating myself constantly over and over again. There is a lot of legitimate grievances and criticisms that we need to be uh, keeping up on, on the conversation. But at the same time, we need to be able to see the broader context. Without that, it's just pointing a finger when there's a whole host of people, organizations, countries, companies, just individuals, whoever, who are part of the problem. I felt that I needed to do an episode like this because I talk about PSG, which in its current form, of course, it's intertwined with Qatar I'm a PSG fan, I'm not a Qatar fan, but while not excusing any of these issues with the country or these games, I felt very strongly that we don't really get anywhere with this issue because the conversation is on a level of basic finger pointing and sometimes steering even to the side of Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism. That's not all it is, of course, but let's not kid ourselves by thinking that all football fans are rainbow flag-waving spokespeople for unionized South Asian labor. You can see that some people get a little too excited when they feel they can legitimately criticize a culture they already think is inferior to them anyway. Today's topic, it's been bigger than any of the others before uh, in the show, and it is one for which there aren't very good answers or solutions, I don't think. There's some in theory, but in practice, very difficult. We certainly haven't cracked this today, because it is far too complex for that to happen. But I feel like if we all do small things, apply the pressure we have, speak out and demand better, if everyone does that, something better might come. But it's almost a paradox because this is entertainment. Football is entertainment. And it's almost like going to cinema to see a Hollywood film and while watching the special effects, trying to enjoy the whole thing, thinking whether the runners in the set were treated fairly and the interns as well. Has there been sexual harassment in the set? Do the cameramen get the union salaries and all that kind of stuff? It kind of clashes with the whole purpose of the exercise, the escapism. That's what football also is to us. Then we go and tweet about it as long as the platform still exists with our phones made in sweatshops from minerals dug up by children somewhere. Yet we have some kind of moral obligation to try. Perhaps it's just that we need to try a little bit harder. I wasn't trying to be a buskill, believe it or not. Different topics in different episodes, but you know we had to talk about this. We just had to talk about it. I talk about PSG, I try to analyze it and understand it to critically engage. So I can't just overlook this situation like nothing has happened or nothing is happening. I'm certainly not part of the paid-for internet army if such thing exists like they were saying. And supporting PSG is not just the new Jordan Kitchen. Good times, it's bigger, something much bigger. That's how I feel. At least to me it is for better or worse. 
More PSG review next time. My name is Nico. Thank you for listening. Take good care. Peace.